Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 3 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. This episode, we'll be catching up with Chris Holmes to find out more about Stack, amongst other things. Let me talk a little bit about launches. It just so happened yesterday, the 26th, we had another ISRO rocket, Indian Space Research Organization rocket, deliver another 14 satellites into orbit. 12 of these were dubs. There's a good blog on um, what planet do when they have a launch. They like to serve pancakes for good luck, <laughs> <laughs> which makes me sort of chuckle. So are these the super duper doves uh, that people have been talking about? You've just added the word duper. But <laughs> <laughs> they are super doves, yes, 12 of them. Flock 4P. I was going to say something else also in, in launching news. Oh, yes, I think that uh, SpaceX about to launch another load of its Starlink satellites as well fairly soon, and that will jump them to the biggest private operator of satellites. Cool, shall we move on to the news then on the 27th of November 2019? The first thing I was going to mention is that GEO, the Group on Earth Observations, posted something earlier this month. It's the opening up the free and open access to ALOS and ALOS to Pulsar and Scansar. So this is quite exciting that there's yeah. more radar data being made available. Yeah, there's this kind of huge cascade of radar data all of a sudden becoming open. There's no indicator on how this is being opened up or what the access is going to be like or anything like that. Someone needs to make a stack of this, yeah. which we'll be able to find out more about in our main interview later on in the podcast. But this is great news that there's more radar data coming out. Okay, cool. So I've got a few things that I wanted to mention in sort of passing notes that we've talked a little bit about in the past. Mm -hmm. There's at the moment being developed a Google Earth Engine QGIS plugin. Hang on, is that from within QGIS? You can set up your calls yep, that's to the data to and it will plop the answer into your QGIS. Yeah. Oh my God, that's... So yeah, cool. yeah, it's really good. Due to be uh, released at AGU 2019, there's also a new version of X-Ray out. Uh, we talked about X-Ray um, previously, so check that out. Gary Sherman's released a brand new version of the QGIS plugin tool. 3.10's been released on QGIS. That will become the long-term release in February. So that's pretty exciting. So okay, cool. The yeah. year's flown by, hasn't it, in that sense? Yeah. There's just loads of software that seems to hit this time of year. Things like Rasta.io and Geopandas are just getting updated so frequently. Excellent. It was really good to hear about such a healthy um, ecosystem of, of tools that are coming out, That you know, because all of these things are so helpful in terms of getting to the information endpoint out of these images. With yeah. the too long we've been dealing with data and people like you and I love data but even so it's nice to be able to have the tools to quickly get through the mundane tasks and get to the exciting bit of trying to find out the answer to whatever problem it is you've got so thank you very much to the uh, the open source community for all of the work that you developers do it really is appreciated I think absolutely yep I've got a bit of a fun one here I think and initially I put this in as a bit of a 
oh, this is a bit weird and not sure who would use this. But then the more I've been thinking about it, this might actually be one of those applications where you didn't see it coming, but actually it just uses Earth observation data in a way that you would never have thought that it would have been used and no one has to really think too hard about processing the data or anything else. So mm. this is something called spellfee.com, which, bear with me, allows you to, it's an app you download onto your phone, it allows you to take a selfie at the exact same time that a satellite camera captures the location from space. Okay, so that's that's what it does. You basically, okay. you set up an event that you want to go to, it tells you where to go and stand, tells you what time you need to be there, and when to take the photo, you take your selfie, and then at the same time, the satellite is going overhead and imaging, and there's nothing to say that it's going to be cloud-free, so <laughs> you're sort of stuck with whatever the weather conditions are like. But then a couple of hours later, you get the satellite image next to your selfie image on your phone, and that apparently is something that people want. And so, <laughs> I, you know, it's one of those things where... I am obviously not the target audience for this, being someone who doesn't take that many selfies. And I was thinking, okay, well, is that really that great? But everybody knows how to take a selfie. But you wouldn't know about what satellite's up there and where it's going to be and what the image is like. The Vision 1 satellite imagery from Airbus, which is the imagery being used, is 0.9-meter resolution in panchromatic and 3.5-meter in the multispectral, and multispectral is RGBN, and it has a 20-kilometer swath. This is a fun way to get people to start looking at their wider surroundings, because obviously it takes an image of you and you're just sort of one or two pixels in there somewhere or your event is one or two pixels somewhere in the image, but you have all the other information around you. And I think this might actually start getting people to to think about their wider environment and how satellite imagery can inform them about what's around them. Initially, I was a bit like, really? But now I would be interested to know if any of our listeners have used this. So do post on Twitter if you have used it, because I think this is an interesting concept. <sighs> And you don't. <laughs> I'm a bit flabbergasted by it. Isn't this just a GPS thing? Yeah. I mean, effectively, it is. it's one of these things where if you told me that this was an idea, I'd be like, well, I'm not funding that. But <laughs> <laughs> someone has funded it. It's up and running. And it is a way of capturing the imagination of everybody, really. Okay. I'm a bit, I'm a bit perplexed by it. I'm looking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. we're just a sector that struggles to define ourselves in coherent way to users and maybe maybe just maybe that this spell fee thing is one of the ways that we can do it um i've got a, a couple of things i wanted to mention sort of finally and i mean i wanted to sort of mention that orbital insight have gone for series d funding you know 50 million dollars in funding to secure global 2000 market leadership i'm not quite sure what that headline really means they've now had over 125 million of funding that's a lot of money isn't it i mean that's a that's a lot of funding for a company that is essentially deriving some information using satellite data. There's a lot of funding coming into some of these organizations, but the traditional sales mechanisms are still locked in a sort of cost per pixel type of thing. And that's not really what anyone wants. And yet trying to get 
people to sign up to subscriptions to, in order to access data or anything else, I get the impression is quite difficult. Yeah. It's interesting how a lot of the data issues are being technically solved, but it's a lot of the softer things about trying to get people's mindsets to change and to accept that things are changing. Well, yeah. I mean, we've certainly spoken about this before, haven't we? I mean, yeah. I still think the majority of the business, for want of a better term, is in B2B consulting services on a project by project basis. I suppose if you've just secured 50 million, then you don't need to worry for a while. <laughs> well, I mean, is that a lot of money? Yeah, that's a good question. I think overall, this is really good news. Obviously, it's really good news for Orbital Insight. But I think just generally, if people are willing to fund these analytics companies to this amount of money, then there obviously has to be something there. Those funders aren't just going to fund on the back of nothing. Mm. Um, well, yeah. we would hope not. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure. I'm sure. So there must be some, some strong business case there. So that is good not just for Orbital Insight, like I've said, but also for all of the other businesses around that. Okay, and so the last thing I wanted to mention, there's a load of stuff that goes on with Earth Engine, as we've talked to many times before. There's this very nice beginner's cookbook. This tutorial is really nice because it says, this is how you get the map centered. This is how you get the variable name. This is a string and array. And this is so dense with information and just just the very good examples and explaining operations and filtering and getting your idea around this idea of applying your functions to images or collections or all this kind of stuff so this could be well worth an hour or two yeah this is amazing resource okay so we're really really chuffed to have uh, chris holmes from planet on the podcast today it's absolutely great to have you with us chris could you please just quickly introduce yourselves to the audience sure yeah i'm chris holmes like you said current Main gig is a planet, but I tend to wear a few different hats. So I'm also a technical fellow at the Radiant Earth Foundation. They do a bunch of great work on bringing geospatial to developing world or doing a bunch on computer vision right now. And then I'm also on the board of the Open Geospatial Consortium doing standards and kind of helping them move along. And yeah, planet, in case people don't know planet, we do uh, satellite imagery, have the largest fleet of, of Earth. Uh, imaging satellites, about 150 up there taking daily imagery. And then, yeah, the main thing I do kind of through all of these is the spatial temporal asset catalog specification. That's really cool. Thank you. Um, so we've mentioned Stack a few times on the podcast and we're big fans of what you're trying to do there. But could you just tell the audience a little bit about what it is and how it came about and maybe some of the organizations that are involved with it as well? Yeah. So it came about... Yeah, I think I had been in and out of standards and Planet is now not technically a startup. It started maybe seven, eight years ago. And, you know, a startup were super stretched thin, weren't doing much in terms of open standards, but got to the point where it's like, hey, we've learned a lot ourselves and would love to kind of expand that past just us and kind of work with others and any sort of business looking at what to open, you kind of say, hey, what's your special sauce? What's unique about you? And then what's the things that you want to be easier for everybody? And kind of APIs and access to the imagery is just kind of clearly not the, the main thing for us. So we sort of looked around and then Radiant Earth helped convene this first um, meeting that, yeah, it didn't have a name yet. It was just sort of satellite interoperability and then this sort of cloud native geospatial trend of what's it look like to share imagery in a more sort of modern way and kind of did a survey and a bunch of people were doing RESTful, JSON, APIs that allowed search of imagery catalogs that were all pretty similar in how they talked but all slightly different because 
there wasn't a standard. And then they yeah. use slightly different fields within that. You know, cloud cover is your sort of classic one where you really want to filter on it. And sometimes it's cloud underscore cover, sometimes it's cloud percentage, sometimes it's zero to one, sometimes it's zero to a hundred. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So being there. Yeah. So it, it was essentially gathering a lot of like-minded people. And I think the, the tweak was it was much more developer focused. Like we wanted real developers there who had engaged with the stuff. It wasn't meant to be a sort of theoretical thing and, and kind of more vendor focused than a lot of other standard efforts. And then I think at the back of my mind of this gathering was also, can we make standards a little differently? Can we use GitHub? Can we you know, embrace JSON more? Can we use kind of more of the, the recent open collaboration texts that really come from open source software, which is my background, um, to build right. a spec? So the first meeting just kind of laid down those ground rules. There were these principles of, you know, use open API to specify working code over conversation, and then just kind of brought together a number of different organizations. And yeah, who was involved? That's the first one. Yeah, Digital Globe, Dow Maxar was there. Uh, Harris was there. Yeah, Radiant Earth convened it. Obviously, Planet, Element 84, and Development Seed to kind of DC area. Smaller shops to do tons of great open source stuff. And yeah, more than I can remember, but... In terms of people who are developing it now, is it still sort of DC area startups and things, or has it become a global list of developers? Uh, it's definitely global. I'd say it's more US-centric a little bit, but yeah, certainly uh, there's a number of really good European contributors. And, and yeah, and I think, I think we've had five sprints so far. So the, the first one was okay. that initial um, gathering and sprints have really become the way that we kind of come together. And, I mean, really, it's the work happens virtually and on GitHub, but like, how do you get everyone's attention for a couple of days? And how do you kind of sort through the bigger issues? It's just kind of better yeah. to talk through that. And yeah, and so we had, yeah. And then people have sort of joined the community for different sprints and sprints tend to be the, the main liftoff point. Well, somebody will come, they're interested, and then kind of get engaged in the conversations and start contributing more afterwards. So like Matthias Moore, I think he joined, I think it might even been the third sprint Okay. And yeah, he's in Munster, Germany. Yeah, we had him on the podcast a couple of months ago. So yeah, he's, he's doing some great work. Yeah, so, you know, it was aligned enough with his open EO work, like wanted a standard for that type of thing. So he came and then he's been a big contributor since. Oh, that's brilliant. It's quite interesting that you have, well, it's great that you have the, the two big players, Maxar and Harris, involved at this early stage. That's really brilliant. I've seen some videos online from Element 84 where they were talking about how a lot of the NASA catalogs as well are beginning to be put into yep. stack. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the work gets done? Are these companies funding people to work specifically on Stack or is it done sort of in extra time or, or what's the development model? Really? Yeah, I'd say it's somewhere in between. And I mean, the cool thing is people are getting more and more, I think, work development time. I've been in geospatial open source for a while and I think most people are funded by a company. It aligns enough. The early days, it was definitely pretty much I and mean, people would get the time to come to the sprint um, and contribute probably after the first two sprints then afterwards it was me <laughs> like because I was <laughs> I was the only one with funded time and, and that was from I, I got a day a week from planet and a day a week from radiant earth so I was able to push it forward but yeah after the third sprint I think was where we really started to see a, an uptake and, and that said that's on the spec itself I think early days people were working on their implementation so Right. SAT API was an early one, Boundless's um, Staccato, which is now part of Planet, was an early one. And they sort of found a need 
with a customer of sort of why they were building it and felt Stack was a good idea to incorporate it. And indeed, it is so key that somebody is actually trying this thing out, making it work in the real world. I think in early days, it was, yeah, more people didn't have the dedicated time to work on the spec, but they would find the time. Okay, yeah. And is the project looking for more help at the moment in terms of its development or in terms of its documentation? And what sort of skills are you looking for if, if you We are? try to be as opening and welcoming community as possible. And there's kind of always stuff to be done. The, the easiest stuff, like, I mean, is really build an implementation or help put up a catalog. The spec itself is actually stabilizing quite nicely. And okay. so kind of getting directly in the spec, I mean, certainly welcome, but it's kind of build an implementation first. And it really is use the spec, put up a catalog. Like that's the thing we really want to see is more data available as stack that pushes our assumptions on it. We have a plan to go to 1.0 now, which the idea is 1.0 beta kind of sometime in February. And then not until we get a billion records actually in stack as public data, do we want to call it 1.0? Kind of, I think- A billion? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's big. <laughs> well, it's big. It's, it's actually not that big because it's like NASA CMR is 380 million right there. Digital Globes catalog is 100 million. Planets is two or 300 million. So you get there pretty right. soon. The funny thing is that there is actually, there's a customer that adopted it really early and takes planet imagery and does farm stuff with it and makes five or six derivative products from every single image and clips them. And they were like, yeah, we got like 1.2 billion in our instance. What? <laughs> like, Wait, you already hit the goal. Like, I need to update the goal to be public data sets because, I mean, it's private and like not everyone can can access it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, so yeah, there's in production wow. today. And I mean, it, it's actually interesting and I wasn't necessarily expecting this. The uptake has actually been much larger in internal use than external use in like public data sets and publishing because all these people just deal with a bunch of different diverse data and it's just kind of a mess. It gives enough of a framework around it that you can make sense of different data sources yeah. that you're pulling in. So yeah, Climate Corp is actually doing a big sort of refresh of their internal system and stacks at the core because it just helps make sense. And yeah, Maxar is, their new catalog is going to be all based on it. The benefit of stack is if you put in this format, then you get an ecosystem of tools. Uh, okay, so so basically, if I was working on a project with Andrew and maybe a couple of other freelancers as well, and we needed to share the data, it would make sense for us to just create a little project yep. stack, maybe, exactly, and then we can all work off the API. Like, okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, and it's the API, and then I think a lot of people are even finding the we call it the static catalog. That's just JSON files on S3. So this was a lot of thinking of like, what's the simplest possible thing you can do, and it actually is don't make people provide a search interface. Standing up an index is actually quite difficult, but just putting right. data on S3 where it's super reliable and there's, there's an API, you can access it, you can crawl links, you can do stuff with it. And so it's just kind of a way to organize your data. And if you put it in that, then you can take, yeah, an API like Side API, like Staccato, like, you know, S3 should support it soon. And you point that at your static catalog, it does the index and provides the API and you're not actually having to kind of provide your own API. Um, and then mm. you get like Stack Browser, where actually work directly off the static one, where you can visualize it. If it's cloud-optimized GeoTIFF, you get a map sort of for free. QGIS plugin works against the API. The hope is that most any geospatial software will be able to just understand it and ingest it. Okay, cool. My last question on Stack is, um, you've already mentioned the QGIS plugin. I noticed also there's a Postgres, uh, PostGIS, I think, oh, plugin yeah. being developed as well. Are these plugins 
part of the core development plan or are they just people who are super enthusiastic have just gone, you know what, let's make plugins for this thing? Yeah, I think it's somewhere in between. Yeah, I think in the early days I did do a roadmap of kind of, hey, this is the work that we'd love to see around the spec. And yeah, I think it's back to the, you know, we don't see the spec as separate from the implementations. There are not people that are necessarily in the core that are making these things. Um, you know, okay. some of them are joining yeah. the core, but yeah, the QGIS plugin, this guy, Kevin Booth, he was a grad student at Texas. He came to the fourth sprint and I mean, I've been wanting a QGIS plugin forever. And he was like, oh yeah, I've got it half working and came to the sprint to like finish it off. Um, and wow. yeah, and he did that. Yeah, he's actually part of Radiant Earth now, which is cool. So yeah, I think it's becoming more and more of, yeah, people are doing it on their own and bringing it in. But then we try to guide the things and make clear like, hey, this is where work has been done. This is where work would be great to be done. Chris, the uh, Phosphor G North America 2018 presentation that you gave, mm. It's often refer people back to awesome. I could ask you loads of convoluted questions, but really, <laughs> I, the, the question I want to ask you is, how close are we now to a queryable? Uh, you know, we're actually a lot closer than at the time. I mean, I don't think we're fully there, but it was really cool. <laughs> this guy, Mark Craddock at UN Global Pulse, he asked me to talk to them. And I think it was only like a couple of days before. I was like, what should I talk about? And he's like, oh, just give that like just go through that presentation again i was like oh yeah that presentation and i clicked because like that's where i met him was when giving that presentation so i kind of like dusted it off it's still the foundations i mean that talk yeah i won't try to to recap it but it kind of starts the vision that it has like maybe eight or nine things that are kind of infrastructure pieces that we need to get there and yeah really yeah. that final step once all these pieces are there and once you have layers of not just open data, but cloud accessible data. We're able to crunch it all and process it. Um, and so it's really at those layers below that, that a lot of progress has been made. The key piece to me is what I call information feeds that is really this abstraction of GIS and remote sensing. And, and that to me is the core of queryable earth is, you know, at the highest level, it's, yeah, let me ask a question, do some natural language processing. But to me as the geo person, it's, it's one level below that, which is, how how do you abstract out GIS and remote sensing? Yeah. We have been a niche field, and I think it's because if you want to make use yeah. of it, you got to come in and learn a bunch of stuff. You know, like what's a projection? Like even just work with data, you'll pretty early on get some data different projection, and it'll just break your brain of like, what what you people? You know, <laughs> and and it's interesting because I actually was. I've only been doing the remote sensing side for maybe five or six years before Planet. I had never touched imagery. And when I first showed up, I was just kind of blown away by how much is put on the user. Mask out your clouds, do your atmospheric correction of kind of all these things. And I think that's where yeah, this notion of analysis-ready data, and there's been kind of two ARD workshops. Um, I think it still has more to go, but you're seeing more and more people where that getting to that standard of, hey, we really should abstract out at least the remote sensing um, into yeah. why don't you guys figure out bringing in diverse data sources and being able to do scientific measurements on it. And I think that's yeah. the step one of the really big key. And then step two is how do you extract out from that nice clean thing? And how does someone who just studies computer vision be able to work with this data where they yeah. don't have to understand all this stuff? To me, kind of classic information feed is like roads change. You know, so how can I just subscribe to a rapidly urbanizing area like in China and just visualize where the roads are being built? And how can I make those questions something that a normal developer would do? You know, I don't yeah. need to 
conflate a bunch of stuff. I don't need to reproject it. I can just kind of ask from this time to this time, how many new rows are there? And that's a pretty hard question for a JS like gathering all that data. Like how do we actually abstract that out? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it does feel that we've been talking about being at a tipping point in the geospatial sector for, for many years. Yeah, true. And a lot of the progress I've seen tends to be in non-geospatial-based companies. So you, the Ubers of this world, yeah. for example, we've got this problem and we're, this is how we're going to address it. At conferences, you always hear people saying, oh, there's loads of people who are interested in this stuff. The market is right. limitless, right. which is always a bit a dangerous thing to say, I always think. The leadership doesn't necessarily come within the sector that we work in. Yep. How, how do you sort of feel about I that? I fully agree with that. Let's not presume that we know the end interface. Let's just try to make our stuff solid. And like, I go back yeah. to the World Wide Web and it's, they weren't imagining 20 years in the future and they weren't trying, like they were like, cool, let's make web pages, you know? And this is an interoperable thing that people can access. And then you have layers and layers and layers on top of that. And I think that's, we haven't made that changing thing. And indeed, what makes me sad is in some cases at LeapFrog, where there is a bunch of good expertise and knowledge, but we're not making that on-ramp to make it accessible. That's why I'm about these kind of small pieces, loosely coupled, common question I get is, oh, I want to use this data, how do I get it? And you're like, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the past, we've had to go and download giga, I only want one band, yeah. I, only want, I only want this little piece of information. Or, you know, I often ask people, sometimes in jest, why can't I just buy one pixel? Right. Why aren't we listening to the customer and find the sort of progress that seems to be making in that area quite compelling? Sort of take another sidestep. I wonder how you see the world, the different market. Are they doing different things, do you think? Or are, are different continents leading in different ways? Are we in a very compartmentalized world or are we in a much more joined up world? Uh, I lean a bit more towards joined up. I mean, yeah, I mean, in terms of overall market, I think it's interesting in Europe versus the US. To me, in terms of the public data, and it's like the US used to be so strong on the public, like it was just everything is default public, which is still true but and then europe was always just not open data you paid for it um, yep. <laughs> and it's cool to see that shift both in your sort of mapping agencies to at least a degree although i think they struggle with those and all but certainly the sentinel and just that effort going into that and being a true global good but i do think europeans have kind of stepped up with leadership in that and kind of saying hey we're going to launch more satellites and put more up in terms of that baseline public good but it's also nice, isn't it? I mean, I guess with your Red and Earth Foundation hat on, that there is the understanding that we need training data in different parts of the world because of the, the biases yep. that we have in um, North America and, and I'm assuming as well in yep. Europe. There is a lot of work to be done in this kind of, I guess you could call it sort of drier or hard to do sort of this manual work that kind of leads into this, this bigger piece. Yeah, I mean, I love the Radiant Earth is making progress on this and indeed, yeah, I sort of mentioned in that talk of this notion of a labeled data commons, and I have not moved on it much at all, but I think, and part of it is I want to get Stack fully wrapped up and, you know, yeah. to a 1.0, but that's definitely the next major sort of open collaborative product. Like a common label? Yeah, exactly. Really clear licensing, some clear de yeah. graphic distribution, some community yeah. around it. Yeah, and I think you like eventually get a flywheel around that stuff because people will want to put data into it to make the models better. You know, like if, if you get to that point where like ImageNet is kind of the main computer vision library, yeah, yeah, not for yeah. geospatial stuff, but for kind of general, just 
image labels. And everyone uses it and does research papers on that. If you could see that equivalent geospatial thing, which I think SpaceNet's definitely making strides to, people are trying to, but you'd see one that is sort of guaranteed to be geographically distributed. I think the deep learning, you see a lot more flexibility. Indeed, Planet does have global models of buildings and roads. And, you know, some areas are a little less so, but you're able to just kind of see apply more training data like to get to a level of accuracy uh, and it took a while to get to that global model of a bunch of different local ones but the the core of the deep learning is yeah more training data gets it better and it kind of learns planet acquires a lot of data every day it comes a point surely where you can't store all this data so we currently don't collect over the whole sea we focus on the land masses Okay. We'll do it in sort of Mediterranean spots that are closer to, to island. So yeah, we're turning off that. I mean, for the other stuff, to your question, we actually do save it all. Okay. Just because of that archive and being able to mine that in the future is going to be so yeah. valuable. I mean, there's lots of data that no one sees today. Um, yeah. But we've really optimized that storage a lot. Most of the data is produced on the fly from this core artifact that comes down from space. We're not storing, like in the older sense, you would produce products, you know, that like was a tile and you'd have that there. We kind of just have the core things and then on the fly we'll produce them. So. No, I, said, I mean, I, I just wonder, you know, what my geospatial data footprint is. Why have I got so many copies of a certain image? Why are we duplicating these images hundreds and hundreds yeah, yeah. of times of common areas? We're just not working very sensibly. Well, to me, this is the cloud native geospatial and like really like as planet, it sort of kills me when people copy it because it's like, just, yeah, exactly. just stream yeah. it, just access it. And I think it needs to be more and more accessible and people need to see that, like that core infrastructure is there, but what's that tooling on top of it? But you're going against 30 years of yeah, exactly. downloading stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to take a while. Yeah, I think that's more of just the tradition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need it. You need to own it. You know, you can't just yeah. rent it. You, you know, even a subscription, yeah. like I need to have these bits on my thing. It needs to be a similar thing for people to come to streaming of like, how much more do you get by making this switch? Yeah. Like really yeah, make yeah. that clear to people. And some of that could be cost savings. Some of that could be computation. It's not possible. But I think that's where we're not there yet. We're like, hey, this is better. But it's like, why? I only care about this area. Chris, I'm going to stop us there. That has been brilliant. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Okay, if you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSceneFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJocker and at Matt underscore Andrew. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Cheers. Bye. Whoever's developing that deserves a pat on the back, a pizza, and a pint of beer.
podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.